Coming up, it's zero hour for net neutrality. Netflix manages to creep out the entire internet. And where are the flying cars? Probably closer than you think. It's Wednesday, the second best day of the week. This is Steve Tushanko, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you this week by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions. For media organizations and content creators, you love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. That's H-A-M-M-E-R-H-E-D-C-M-S.com. Music in the show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. So I live in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, in a house that was constructed in the early 1960s. And the thing about a house that's constructed in the early 1960s is that it is difficult to update. It's possible to update any house, right? You can do anything you want to any property that you own, which is a great thing about property ownership. But if you want to make serious changes to the inner workings of the house, you are going to have to rework some things. And that means that I have not been able to take advantage of some of the latest and greatest technology I would like to take advantage of. For example, got a Nest thermostat. Nest, of course, is the smart thermostat produced by a subsidiary of Google, which is supposed to control your temperature more efficiently, make heating costs a little more manageable by virtue of its intelligent management of the heating of your home, I can't even install it. I tried to install it, but my connection to the heating system is just not what it needs to be. However, this past weekend, I went to visit my parents' place. And by the way, I have to say hi to my parents here. They listen every week. Thanks for listening. I was over there, had a great time. They live in a modern apartment building on the beach. It is really, really nice. And they have so much technology in it. And it's something that I like to take notice of and appreciate while I'm there. Not all of it makes sense. And that is a fascinating thing because something that we've focused on uh, on this podcast before is that not all innovations are good innovations. Sometimes you want to throw things out there in the technology world to see what catches on or because something seems cool or seems like a good idea, but it doesn't always. It's not always a good thing. It doesn't always work. And as a digital product manager, sometimes my job in the past has been to determine what really is a good idea and what just seems cool. That's actually a big part of the job. And I try to shy away from stuff that's simply cool as much as I love cool stuff. So when I go to my parents' apartment, I get to see all sorts of technologies. Some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't make as much sense. For example, they have window shades that can be automatically raised or lowered on a schedule or by manipulating controls on an iPad. This actually makes some sense, right? I, here at home in my low-tech house, have to manually raise and lower the shades every day. Why should I have to do that? Why should I have to take 30 valuable seconds out of my day to raise and lower the shades? Why do I always have to remember to do that? They don't necessarily have to do that. I don't think it's configured as I would configure it over there, but Theoretically, they don't have to do it. Meanwhile, they control all their entertainment 
through iPads. It's a system where you hook up all the boxes that you have in your home. For example, maybe you have an Apple TV, maybe you have a cable box, maybe you have a sound system. You can hook it all up in a closet. You never even see the boxes, so you don't have to have these ugly boxes getting in the way. You don't use any remote controls. An iPad app takes over all the remote controls. So they have all these iPads lying around and you can control pretty much everything. And you know what? It's a little awkward because as cool as the iPad is, as cool as tablets are, they're not really made for this. There's something about the tactile feel of a physical remote control that allows you to manipulate what you're watching much more easily. And when I come home and use my TV or use my Fire TV stick with a traditional remote, not necessarily a traditional remote in the case of the Fire TV stick, but a remote with an actual traditional form factor with tactile buttons that you can feel and press, it is a far better and easier entertainment consumption experience than this experience that somebody thought was better and in some senses is better, right? Because everything's managed in one place. The ugly boxes are hidden, but in a very real sense, it's not better. And I would sacrifice the aesthetics for not really having to look down at the iPad and think about it and wonder about whether I'm pressing the right button and just this general awkwardness that exists. I would make that sacrifice and I would go back to the lower tech world. And sometimes, sometimes that's just going to make sense for you. It's all a matter of what catches on, right? The great thing about technology, the technology business and capitalism in general, is that nobody's really forcing anything on you in general. There are exceptions to that, but usually the market wins, right? The things that have the greater utility win. That's why we have touchscreen smartphones, for example, because that was introduced and that won. That's why we have websites that look like they do now. That's why we have mobile apps that work the way they do because these innovations have been conceptualized and they've been introduced, but somebody has said in large numbers, right? So it's not just somebody, but huge numbers of people have said, yes, this is what we want. And this other technology, this older technology is not what we want. But in some cases, the newer technology is rejected because it doesn't even make sense. It's not better than the old stuff. So advancement is not always great. Progress is not always great. And maybe in 10 years, I'll be wrong and everyone will be watching TV exclusively using their iPad, no remote controls. I bet that won't happen. Whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, it's the market that's gonna decide. Have you been wondering what's in the news lately? Well, fortunately, this is your lucky moment as this is the part of the show where you will find out. First up this week, Netflix has creeped out America with a tweet that reveals the personal viewing habits of its users. Netflix recently released a new holiday movie called A Christmas Prince, and apparently A Christmas Prince has been very popular because this week Netflix tweeted, and I quote, 
to the 53 people who've watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days, who hurt you? Now, there was a firestorm of criticism for Netflix following this tweet. Netflix was attempting to be cheeky, of course, and they were also trying to slyly promote the popularity of its new Christmas movie. Obviously, if this is a movie that 53 people have watched every day for the past 18 days, somebody must love this movie, and maybe you'll love this movie too. But this tweet backfired. It seems that the vast majority of people who read it were simply creeped out by it. The personal information revealed that these 53 specific people have done something very embarrassing on Netflix and watched the same sappy movie every day for the past 18 days. Now, Netflix, of course, did not name names. They didn't say who the 53 people who watched were, but it still seemed to be an icky example of shaming people. And it also highlighted the fact that Netflix knows exactly what you're doing at all times. Even though Netflix didn't name those 53 people, they certainly could have. That data was there, and this was an unwelcome reminder that Netflix has that data. They know what you've been doing, and they are going to use what you have been doing. Now, one Twitter user responded, quote, Netflix collects data on paying users demonstrates that they'll use that data to ridicule specific customers publicly and that Netflix doesn't respect their larger customer base's concerns about other ways Netflix might misuse private data. Doesn't that seem a little too long to be a tweet? That must have been one of those newly expanded tweets where you get more characters. I thought that was a little long for Twitter. But despite its length, it has some good points. Yes, you can make good points in more than standard Twitter length. Privacy versus utility has always been a tug of war on the internet. We are all willing, at least the vast majority of us are willing, to give up some of our privacy for more functionality. And that's not just true with Netflix. That's true of tons of applications out there on the internet. When you use Gmail, for example, Google serves you ads based on the content of your emails. Google is reading your emails, and it's not somebody at Google literally sitting there reading your emails, but the point is kind of that it could be, and that bothers a whole lot of people. Now, who's misusing your data? Well, there haven't really been too many high-profile cases where companies really abused that, uh, really abused this data that they have, at least not in ways that violate their own terms of service. But it certainly is an issue that this data could be hacked, that somebody could get your data against the will of both you and the company. And Netflix's tweet really raised the question of whether Netflix is willing to abuse this information. Now, Netflix's data that it has on you is extraordinarily valuable. They're not just collecting it for fun, ladies and gentlemen. They are using that information in ways that you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear about and ways that you may be a little more surprised to hear about. Probably the most famous example of Netflix using this awesome store of data that they have is the show House of Cards, starring the now disgraced Kevin Spacey, though it will return for another season with no Kevin Spacey, starring Robin Wright. If you're a House of Cards fan, that's a little bonus news 
for you. Now, how did House of Cards even come about? Well, that is the story of technology and what it can do to change all aspects of our life, including the world of entertainment. House of Cards was Netflix's first high-profile original series. It wasn't quite its first original series, as a lot of people think, but it was its first ballyhooed high-profile original series, and it was the first that they used data to create. According to the story, Netflix found that viewers who were streaming old shows on Netflix were watching a lot of movies starring Kevin Spacey, and those same people were watching a lot of movies directed by David Fincher. And those same people were watching a lot of the British version of House of Cards. So what did Netflix do? Well, they created an American version of House of Cards produced by David Fincher and starring Kevin Spacey. And surprise, surprise, it was a hit. So clearly this worked. This was gangbusters. This was a great, great idea. And now they do that sort of stuff all the time. But there are other more subtle examples of how Netflix uses your data. For example, if you're on Netflix, you see tiles representing shows that Netflix would like you to watch. Well, what you may not know is that different users are seeing different tiles than you are. Depending on the interests that you've expressed to Netflix based on what you're viewing, you may see, for example, a female cast member in the tile instead of a male cast member. You may see simply the title of the show as opposed to something atmospheric about the show. You may see more of a horror type of look rather than a drama type of look for the show. Netflix knows what you'll click on and they are willing to use it. It all depends on who you are. So Netflix will not stop using your data and they will not stop collecting your data. What they may do after this Twitter controversy is be a little more judicious about when they are revealing that they're using your data. They may be a little quieter about it. But by the way, 53 people watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days. 53 people. Who's to say that wasn't 53 dentist offices showing it on a loop? Next up, this is the week that net neutrality comes to a head. Now, we have covered net neutrality many times on this podcast. Why have we covered it so many times? Because it's that damned important. And this week is the moment of truth. This is the week that the Republican-dominated FCC is expected to reverse net neutrality rules. A refresher, a very brief refresher, because we've talked about it so many times, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with this idea, net neutrality is the idea that internet service providers cannot treat some data differently than other data. All this data is coming through to you and it all has to take the same priority. The New England Tech Podcast has to take the same priority as YouTube, right? You have to be able to get both of these uh, forms of content with similar speeds in the same way. It has to be fair. There are a lot of forces out there, particularly the internet service providers, who aren't happy with that. They want to be able to create a fast lane and a slow lane. And this week, the FCC is expected to say, yes, you can do that. Now, net neutrality opponents have compared this move to Y2K. I find that very interesting because I was there. I was there, everybody, for Y2K. If you're 
too young to remember this, Y2K was when, in 1999, everybody thought, well, we are using two digits to store the year, right? We're saying, we're not saying 1999, we're saying 99. And when that flips over to 00, all these systems are going to think it's 1900 and everything's going to go nuts. Everything's going to collapse. And then January 1st, 2000 happened and people were terrified and society did not collapse. Everything went fine. Net neutrality supporters have been talking a lot about how this will change the internet. This will potentially change the internet, right? So many potential negative consequences from your favorite sites being slower to less freedom, less free speech in the internet, right? Because people will have to pay for speech now in ways that they didn't before. So this is what net neutrality supporters are afraid of and opponents say, well, this is just like Y2K, it's overblown, it's a bit, it's a big nothing. I thought that was really interesting because was Y2K a, bit, a big nothing, right? That's the popular conventional wisdom that Y2K was so overblown, but there were so many people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people working on this problem, the Y2K problem as it was called 18 years ago, working on it all day, every day, maybe, the fact that nothing happened was because we were vigilant, not because it was overblown to begin with, but because we took it seriously and society as a result did not collapse. Everything went fine. So I think in a similar way, we can be vigilant about net neutrality and prevent these bad things from happening. Now, Ajit Pai, he's a guy we've discussed a lot on the show. He is the Donald Trump appointed head of the FCC, a former attorney for Verizon, which is one of the nation's main internet service providers, the very industry trying to get net neutrality appealed, he has made getting rid of net neutrality a sort of holy war because he is very much in bed with the ISPs and he also is a, a conservative who believes in no regulation for anything. And this is regulation of the internet. And that's how they're trying to sell it. As when the government gets involved in the internet, everybody loses. But we all know that that's not really true. The vast majority of us know that that's not really true. So Ajit Pai says that without these additional revenue streams that ISPs uh, will have access to once they eliminate net neutrality, they can't provide services to rural customers and make other critical approve, uh, improvements. Now, it is the official opinion of this podcast, and we've said that this, this before, but I'm going to be a little more blunt about it this time because now we're serious. It is our opinion that additional profits to profitable companies tend not to go into improvements, but into lining the pockets of executives, not to get too political or anything, but we see this happening over and over and over again. The truth is, Everybody's going to lose if net neutrality is eliminated. Protests are roiling the internet as a result of this. People are posting on social media in an effort to support net neutrality. Uh, Twitter has even gotten into the act by putting a little loading icon next to hashtag net neutrality. When you enter that, you'll get a little loading icon indicating that this may be loading slower in the future because you're... Uh, your freedom, basically, uh, to see everything the same as other things, no matter who's paying for what, is at risk. So everybody's getting into the act. And there's also more traditional protests going on. People are taking on the street with signs. They're chanting chants. I think that's really great, too. Why should this all happen online? Why can't it happen in the real world, so to speak? So despite all this, 
the FCC is widely expected to reverse the net neutrality rules this week. What happens if, as expected, net neutrality is reversed? What comes next? We've talked about the consequences, but what are the next steps? Well, legislation is an option, and a lot of people in Congress are already talking about legislating this, that everything has to be the same on the internet. Now, with a Republican-dominated Congress, and it's the Republicans who've been pushing it in the first place, that doesn't seem particularly likely, but maybe this is the time to lay the foundation for future progress on that. I think a better option is shaming. Now, the law stipulates that ISPs that redirect, throttle, or otherwise impact traffic must publicly post what they're doing. And name and shame campaigns will be critical in combating what they do. If Verizon one day says, well, YouTube is now paying us, so they get priority, and the New England Tech Podcast does not, we can use this online activism to call attention to this to make Verizon embarrassed, to make people boycott Verizon. That may be where we end up. That's what we end up doing. One final question that I want to address here before we move on. Is this push, which the ISPs have been so big on for so long, even worth it for them? Municipalities have already been creating their own internet service providers as utilities, right? So people will be using these municipal internet service providers and not Verizon and not Comcast and not the others. That may be what ends up happening more and more as municipalities end up creating more and more ISPs as utilities to combat this issue that we have with these corporations controlling what we're looking at too much as a public service, as a public service. So internet access may be cheaper in the long run, and the ISPs may end up losing. They may be shooting themselves in the foot because nobody's going to be using them anymore. They don't have to. Also, if the Democrats get in power with a Democratic president, with Roy Moore's election on Tuesday, or Roy Moore's failure to be elected in Alabama, the Republican, if you don't follow politics, lost the election in Alabama. The Democrat won, which is a rare thing to happen in Alabama. That makes it more and more likely that Democrats will ultimately get in power with the Democratic president, potentially as soon as 2020. They may just end up reversing this again, right? Maybe they'll pass a law this time, but maybe they'll just reverse it with their FCC. So you'll see a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth action with net neutrality, and that's not going to be good for anybody involved. We'll never know what the regulations are. They'll be changing all the time. We don't need that, but this week is the moment of truth. Like I said, it is unlikely, it is unlikely that this won't happen, but you know what? Now is still the time to take to the streets and let everybody know that you oppose this. We try not to take sides here, but net neutrality is serious business. This is something we can definitely take sides on. you like me cuz you could go downhill I can't promise that you love me we have been consuming science fiction for a long time we love science fiction in america in the world and the standard question for many years for those who have been disappointed by progress compared to what science fiction promised us 
is where are the flying cars? That was the sci-fi dream. Remember Back to the Future 2, which was centered around the idea of the flying car? That was the coolest thing. Of all the cool things that happened in Back to the Future 2, flying cars were the coolest, even cooler than the hoverboard. And everyone has wondered, since as, as the years depicted in science fiction have approached, I mean, think about 2001, A Space Odyssey, that was... 16 years ago already not the uh, the movie or the book itself but the actual year depicted the movie and book was already 16 years ago so as these years have approached as we now find ourselves in the sci-fi future people are saying well technology has transformed our lives in a lot of ways but where are the flying cars we were promised flying cars they're not there there are things that science fiction didn't anticipate like the internet very few science fiction uh, uh, books or movies predicted something like the internet, which has is transformed everything, right? We couldn't live without the internet these days, but there were always flying cars. There was no internet. There was always flying cars. Now, why haven't there been flying cars? Where are they? We've done so many things. Where are they, in fact? It's possible they're just not feasible in a lot of ways. I have a friend who got a pilot's license years ago, and after taking all those flying lessons and qualifying for his license, he told me at the time he now understood why flying cars would never happen. I thought this was really interesting. He said, it is so much harder to navigate in three dimensions than it is in two that the average person just wouldn't be able to do it without a ton of training and maybe not at all. So flying cars are never going to replace cars that just drive on the, the road because most people simply can't do it. But Uber is working on it anyway, and 19 other companies are also working on plans for flying cars. Isn't that great about our modern tech scene? These things that we took for granted that couldn't happen, right? First, we thought there were going to be flying cars. Then we thought there won't be any flying cars. But Uber says, uh-uh-uh, and 19 other companies say, no, there will be flying cars. We're doing it. There are not only Uber, but traditional companies like Boeing and Airbus, traditional companies uh, in the aerospace world. Startups are doing it. Um, and Uber is now saying that its flying cars might actually hit the sky, not hit the road, by 2020. That is just, just about two years from now at this point. Uber has already announced Dallas-Fort Worth, Los Angeles, and Dubai as test cities. And why are those the test cities? Because those cities are actively working with Uber on this project. And it's not just cities that are working with Uber on this. Uber is actually working with NASA. That's how serious they are. They're working with NASA to create a new air traffic control system just for flying cars. Now, they also want the idea of be you know, the, the legitimacy of NASA. That's that's a big part of why they're working with NASA. But it does suggest that they're very serious and that real people who really work on this are very serious about them from a governmental perspective as well as from a corporate perspective. You may think that this would all be hugely complicated, right? The, an air traffic control system for flying cars. That's a big reason why it hasn't happened. Right? How are these flying cars not going to crash into each other all the time? Now, in Back to the Future 2, these cars are restricted 
to roadways in the sky. And I love Back to the Future too. I love all the Back to the Future movies. But I did wonder when I was watching that, what's what's even the point? Why are flying cars on a, a road in the sky? Why couldn't they just be on a road on the ground? How is being in the sky better? I mean, I guess you don't necessarily have the traction of the, the wheels on the road, but that, that seems like a minor point to me, right? Flying cars should be alleviating traffic, and that's not alleviating traffic. Well, the trick is going to be, surprise, these flying cars are autonomous, and that is what handles not only the traffic issue, but also the issue of people not being good enough to control them themselves. They're driverless flying cars, like the driverless cars that will soon be ubiquitous on our roads. They may soon be ubiquitous in the sky as well. They are autonomous. Does this freak you out a little bit? Flying cars don't freak me out so much, the ones that are on the road. Flying planes? I don't know. You know, when I went up in a plane with my friend who had just taken flight lessons and there was a professional flight instructor next to us, I was terrified. And that was a human being flying the plane. Imagine nobody flying the plane. Now, we've discussed flying cars, in the, or now we've discussed self-driving cars in the podcast and how they're actually safer than cars operated by humans. And I can understand that, and I can relate to that, and I would absolutely ride one, though I have not gotten the uh, I've not gotten the privilege of doing so yet. Planes, flying cars—that makes me a little more antsy, even though it may be irrational that I feel like that. It, it probably is irrational, right? It should be safer, but I just don't know if I could. I just don't know if I could accept that as safer. I don't know. If enough people do it, I'll do it. But I'm not sure how I feel about it personally. And we'll, we're, we're about to find out, as it turns out, how many people are willing to do it. Does this all sound very, very expensive to you? Apparently, it's not. Uber's head of product, Jeff Holden, predicts that taking trips in a flying Uber taxi will be cheaper than owning your own car. Yes, cheaper than owning your own car. Uber is saying that these trips will cost as little as $20. $20, that's Ryanair prices. For those of you with familiarity with Europe, those are easy jet prices. Here in America, really, for 20 bucks, that's what they're saying. Though, of course, we have to take this with a grain of salt right now. Nobody's come up with anything real. This is Uber marketing at work, and there are many analysts out there who think this $20 price point that Uber is citing is not economically feasible at all. So it remains to be seen. But whether or not this really gets off the ground, whether or not you end up being able to afford it, this is just one more example of how the tech world is revolutionizing transportation, which had been stagnant for a very long time. By a very long time, I mean a very long time. Think about how little has changed in the past 50 years when it comes to transportation. You've got public transit that has been gaining popularity, which is a great thing in the United States, but it generally uses legacy technology that's been around for a long time and hasn't really gained much traction, especially in the US. It's certainly gained more in Europe as they've moved more to streetcars, but these aren't new things. These aren't new things. And finally, we're getting these new things, such as the flying cars and the Hyperloop. And notice that these are all coming not from traditional transportation companies, but from newer companies, right? Companies that were startups in the recent past. 
Elon Musk's Hyperloop and uh, and Uber, right? Go doing uh, flying flying cars. So it comes to these innovators to actually innovate. Who would have thunk it? That's what they do. They are disrupting, to use a word that I try not to use on this podcast, and I don't think I ever have before, but they are really disrupting. It is legitimate here, and this is technology that we need because highways, highways are just getting more and more clogged. When you build more, it's an interesting phenomenon. They just get filled up. They don't really help traffic. So we really need more innovation, and we're getting it. Elon Musk's Boring Company. Don't you love that name, The Boring Company? I love it. They are bidding to build not a Hyperloop, but a just plain loop in Chicago, which will connect O'Hare Airport, the major airport in Chicago, to downtown Chicago at high speeds. It's a dream that has been going on in Chicago for decades, high-speed rail from the airport to downtown, but it has been fraught with issues. They actually built a station, a high-speed station down there that's been mothballed, that's just sitting there, has been for probably 10 years now doing nothing. It's just never happened. But now, thanks to Elon Musk and thanks to innovators like that, thanks to disruptors, it seems like it may finally be happening. So look at technology, look at transportation if you want to see one of the biggest ways that technology may ultimately, for all its issues, for all the, the things that it's done that are possibly negative, be, could, who, that could be construed that way, transportation to me is one of the areas where it has indisputably made our lives better and will continue to make our lives exponentially better, at least according to the promise that we're seeing right now. It's a promise that I believe in, and it's a promise that I really have faith will be a reality very soon. Perhaps irrationally excited this week when Amazon released its long-awaited, by me at least, Silk browser for the Fire TV. I'm an avid user of the Amazon Fire TV. Silk is Amazon's proprietary browser, and they've released a version of that browser for the Fire TV. You've never been able to do web browsing on a TV before. I used it, played around with it, was very excited, installed it the first day it was available. It's kind of reminiscent of a really old concept, web TV. Do you remember web TV? Back in the early days of the internet, probably back to the mid to late 90s, some genius, and I, you know, I, I mean genius sarcastically, but it wasn't necessarily a bad idea, said, well, we've got this new internet now that is so exciting people can take advantage of, but computers are scared of people. What people really want is the internet on their TV. So they came up with web TV. I'm not really sure if it was ever that popular, but it was basically a web browser on your TV, and that's what the Silk browser was. It's the same thing so many years later. It's web TV. Now, the web was one of the first killer apps for the internet. They say email was the first killer app. The web was really the thing that brought uh, the internet into the true mainstream, so much so that for many people, the web became synonymous uh, with the internet. A lot of people to this day don't really know the difference between the web and the internet. They think, they think it's the same thing. Now, of course, today, the internet is so much more than the web. And as I used the new Silk browser on the Fire TV, which relies on the internet to do everything, I couldn't help but think, is this really necessary? Is a web browser 
on a TV necessary? Is the web necessary at all? How relevant is the web browser today in a world of apps, in a world of APIs, in a world of streaming media devices? How relevant is the web browser? It's a very big question, and that's why we're going to talk about it a lot more on next week's show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please tune in next week on Tuesday or Wednesday. We never really know anymore. Keep checking. Keep checking. That's the great thing about podcasts. They'll just come through whenever, right? Whenever we're ready. But we will be here next week one way or another. Come hell or high water, we will be here with more news and more commentary. I'm very excited. I hope you're excited, too. My name is Steve Tushankel. Courage.